Good morning. You guys doing well? Did I get to pick the pie? Coconut cream? None of that rhubarb pie stuff or mincemeat. You want me to puke? Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2 is where we are. If you don't have a Bible, buy one. That's rude. Actually, you can pick one up uh, at the information. Uh, we'll give you one. We'll give you one. It's important that you bring a Bible and uh, that you follow along because a lot of the stuff that we talk about, well, guess what? All the stuff we talk about is from the Bible. And uh, I will refer often back to the various references that we're uh, learning from. And so that way, it will actually mean quite a bit more to you and you'll be able to follow along and God will speak to you powerfully through his word as he does for all of us here on Sunday mornings. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18 is our text here this morning. And if you're not familiar with Ephesians, don't hesitate to take a look at that table of contents to find your way there. It's in the New Testament. This is our life. There's an app for that teaching series. We're talking about harmony. Let me start off by just uh, asking a question, maybe something that you can think about. Is it possible to have racial, gender, cultural, socioeconomic diversity with relational harmony? Do you think that's possible? I don't think we're doing a very good job on this planet Earth. But do you think that's possible? How many think it's possible? Show of hands. Only by the gospel. Only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that's true. And in fact, a sure sign God's power is at work is when people outside the church who were enemies now inside the church are family. And I think that's the change, the amazing change that Christ can bring to our lives. And that's the point uh, that Paul makes in our text today. Maybe you can complete this sentence. Maybe you're familiar with it. First service didn't do so well. Let's see how well you do. Jesus was uh, talking to his disciples. He had washed their feet, 13th chapter of John, and then at the end of that, he says, All men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That's kind of wimpy. How many knew that were just afraid that I might come out there and hit you or something if, I, if, you, if you were wrong? Okay, yeah, that's not true. So, how many, how many knew that verse? You know what I'm talking about. Okay, more. Okay. So, all men will know that you are my disciples by how knowledgeable you are of God's word. No, it doesn't say that. It's saying by your love for one another. So how about you? Are you characterized by love? Would people say, wow, I, I can tell that they, there's something about their life that's different. They, they must know God because of their love for others. There's another verse. And it's uh, found in Matthew five forty four through 45. Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, It is taught to you to love your neighbors but hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, and then you will be just like your daddy in heaven, your father in heaven. You'll be a son and a daughter. You'll be known as a son, and, son or a daughter of your father in heaven. What is he saying? He's saying that that is what should characterize our life. And, I mean, and it makes sense. I mean, if you, if you have the slightest idea of God's love, if, you, if you're beginning to understand, there's no reason why you shouldn't have a fervent passion for God and an overflowing compassion for others as you begin to understand and live in the reality of God's amazing, sacrificial love for you. The more you live in the reality of what he's done for you, man, your heart feels like it's going to explode with love back to him and to others. That, that's the, what he's saying, and that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about harmony, and, and so we're looking at the cause and cure of humanity's biggest problem. And in fact, I get this idea of harmony from three verses in our text we'll read in just a moment. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, referring to Jesus. Verse 15, making peace. He came making peace. And then verse 17, he came and preached peace. So let me ask this question real quick. How many by show of hands would say that you could probably use some help in this area of conflict resolution? Show of hands. Ooh, that's almost all of us. Some of you that didn't raise your hand, you need it more than those that did raise their hand, okay? 
because you didn't raise your hand. I think it's something that we all need to grow in. We need to get better at it. I've been at it for many, many years, and I still want to get better at this conflict resolution, how to work through conflict issues in my own life. And so let's do that. Let's get better at this. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? And let's pray. And then we'll dive into our text this morning. Father God, thank you for all the moms, both biological and spiritual. Isaiah 49, 15 through 16, as your word says, Can a mother forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Though she may forget, God, you will not forget us. You have engraved us on the palms of your hands. Open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things out of your word. And out of the outrageous, sacrificial love you have for us, teach us how to better love one another and to even love our enemies for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Let's take a look at this text. I'll try not to stop as we work through it. I just kind of want to read it. I'll comment very briefly on some things just to bring you up to speed with the context So let's begin reading chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember, stop there just for a minute, sorry, got to. But therefore, remember, what is he talking about with the therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? It's about the first chapter and a half. So this is what he's saying. In the context of what we've studied over the last four or five weeks, start at Easter. Remember what he said in chapter 1, verse 3? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, your deepest desires and longings of your heart come from God. He has blessed us, total fulfillment, complete well-being in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then he begins to go through and tell us what those are. He chose us, he adopted us, he's graced us, he's redeemed us. He gives us hope, which is a joyful, confident expectation. He prays about that, that, we would, that it would not just be a concept, but a reality in our heart. And then in chapter 2, as we kicked it off last week, we talked about that we are saved by God's grace and that we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece. So he's saying, therefore, because of the wealth of Jesus, because of all that he has done in our lives, so really, if you understand that, your heart should be ravished by the beauty and the glory of Jesus and what he's done for you. Your heart should be smitten by his beauty and glory. Out of that... Remember, and he's also going to go on and talk a little bit about what their life was before Christ. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13 is a wonderful verse. I was meditating on verse 13 as I was with my wife shopping in that new grocery store, Winco. And so we were shopping in Winco. I was meditating on that verse, and I almost started crying. I mean, I just, I had to fight back tears because of this verse. It's such a powerful verse. Notice what he says. So we were separated from God, apart from the promises of God, apart from the wealth and the riches that Christ has provided for us. But he says in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You were eternally separated from God, you and I. But now, as you put your faith in Jesus, you have been brought near. I mean, do you you get the weight of that, the weight of the glory of that? You have access to God. You've been reconciled to the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth. 24-7. You can come into the throne room of God and receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. That's what he's saying. I mean, it just hit me. I don't know. When I study the scripture and I'll meditate on it after I've gone through in my mind over and over, it was almost like this, just the weight of the glory of that verse just hit me. Boom. It was just like, oh, that is wonderful, God. That is amazing. And then he goes on and he 
kind of walks through this a little bit more, talking about this reconciliation that has happened and how because of this reconciliation we have with God, then it's only natural and normal that we would pursue reconciliation horizontally. If we've got it vertically, we're going to do it horizontally. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. You see these redundant, these not redundant, but repeated words over and over again. Uh, Peace, hostility, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Okay, two questions we're looking at as it relates to harmony in our lives, conflict resolution. First one, what causes disharmony? And number two, what is the cure to our disharmony? So first question, you'll notice that next to those two questions, I gave you some other verses, and, and you got growing notes in your, uh, in your bulletin that you can take and work through, kind of go in more depth with this. But James 1, uh, 4, 1 through 12 kind of answers that straight up for us. Let me just read that uh, for you real quick. It's, a, it's really an interesting, James 4, it says, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? So have you ever wondered kind of why, why is there conflict in my home? Why is there conflict in this, in this state or nation or this world? Well, he answers it right here. It is, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he's saying, he's saying it's something that's going on inside of you that creates the hostility and the division and the disharmony outside of you. So he's saying, hey, focus on the inside. And then he goes on and talks about the disturbance that's going on inside of you is because there is a disconnect between you and God. And that's, that's where we're going. So three things. What causes disharmony? First of all, your fill-in-the-blank is hostility. He uses that word twice, verse 14 and 16. Let me read it again. The word literally means hatred. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 16 and might reconcile us both to God. By the way, the both he's talking about there, everybody fits in that category of both. You're either Jew or Gentile. So when he was referring to circumcised, uncircumcised, you fit into one of those two categories, Jew or Gentile. And he's saying here, and might reconcile both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. So we've got to talk about hostility. Because our disharmony is seen in our hostility towards one another, our hatred. Galatians 5.15 says that if we maintain this hostility, we will literally devour one another. And you've seen homes and families devour one another because of hostility. Galatians 5.19-21 says it's a work of the flesh. Flesh meaning it's a work of our self-centeredness, making life about ourselves. And then I gave you another cross-reference there, Ephesians 4, and I put... 29 through 32, X through 29, and actually put verse 26 on your notes. Because you're going to want to read it starting at verse 26, because in 26 it says, Be angry, but don't sin. So anger is a part of our emotional makeup, and it's appropriate. There's appropriate ways to channel it, but oftentimes we misappropriate our anger. It's an energy that God gives us to be able to deal with the things in our life. Now, anger is secondary to... uh, to fear, frustration, and hurt. And you can see why you need a little hostility when, you have, when you're afraid of something. You can kind of defend yourself, whatever it might be. Uh, frustration, maybe not so much. You shouldn't have as much there. And maybe even in hurt, you've got to know how to deal with the hurts of your life. Our tendency is not to manage our anger appropriately. So this is what I need to do. I need to do for us a quick self-test. Because when it comes to anger, all of us fit into one of two categories. We all tend to either be open in our aggression or we tend to be passive in our aggression. Two different ways 
uh, typically two wrong ways of dealing with our anger or our hostility. So let me first of all deal with those that are more uh, like me, open in our aggression. And I will give this self-test and see if you can relate. I'll have you raise your hand at the end of this. Here's open aggression. Self-test. I can be blunt and forceful when someone does, does something to frustrate me. Anybody on that first one, like there? Okay, yeah. <laughs> I love you guys. Right there with me. As I speak my convictions, my voice becomes increasingly louder. Oh, you're raising both hands, okay. Some of us. You don't need to raise your hand for each one of these, but if you'd like to, if it would make you feel better as we work through this, you can do that. But I, it'd probably be kind of fun, but we'll wait until the end and then we'll all put up our hand together, those of us that are like this, okay? Here's the next one. Just so that you know kind of what category you fit in. And of course, if you don't raise your hand, I'm sure the person next to you will raise your hand for you if you're like this. When someone confronts me about a problem, I am likely to offer a ready rebuttal. No one has to guess my opinion. I'm known for having unwavering viewpoints. When someone goes wrong, when something goes wrong, I focus so sharply on fixing the problem that I overlook others' feelings. I have a history of getting caught in bickering matches with family members. During verbal disagreements with someone, I tend to repeat myself several times. I f- you can relate to that, huh? Okay. That's, no, that's fine. I like that. So... Uh, is it in re- reference to you or to the person you're sitting next to? That's what I want. Oh, you're, you're pointing to him. Yes. Boy, we're going to stir up some stuff here this morning, huh? Don't worry. We're going to have prayer at the end and communion, okay? So, yeah, angry, but don't sin. Here's the next one. During verbal disagreements with someone, I tend to repeat myself several times. said that one. I find it hard to keep my thoughts to myself when, it's, when it is obvious that someone else is wrong. <laughs> I have a reputation of being strong-willed. And then here's the last one. I tend to give advice even when others have not asked for it. Show of hands, show of hands. Fess up, praise God. Now here's what's interesting. Usually those that would raise their hand, you're typically married to someone who is kind of the opposite of you. The one that's opposite of you would be more of that passive aggression. Is that true or did we, did anybody hear that the, both the spouses raised their hands during that? Anybody here? Oh my goodness, I know that's true. Oh, whoa, you guys, that's the case? Okay, we'll have special counseling at the end of the service for you guys. Actually, you know, it doesn't matter really because both of these ways of dealing with anger are are wrong. And here's what's interesting. My wife is more of a passive in her aggression. So she used to think because I was open in my aggression that I was sinful. You are so bad. And I go, well, you're just as bad. You just deal with it differently. Now, here's for those of you that are passive in your aggression. This is your test. Passive aggression. When I am frustrated, I become silent, knowing it bothers other people. Sneaky. Yeah. I am prone to sulk and pout. When I don't want to do a project, I procrastinate, I can be lazy. When someone asks if I'm frustrated, I will lie and say, no, everything is fine. There are times when I am deliberately evasive so others won't bother me. I sometimes sometimes approach work projects half-heartedly. When someone talks to me about my problems, I stare straight ahead, deliberately obstinate. I complain about people behind their backs but resist the opportunity to be open with them face-to-face. Sometimes I become involved in behind-the-scenes misbehavior. Here's the last one. I sometimes refuse to do someone a favor knowing this will irritate him or her. Show of hands. Passive aggression, show of hands, okay. Show of hands, okay. How many didn't know which one you fit into? Didn't know? Okay, how many said, how many said both? How many said both? You guys are schizophrenic. Okay. No, actually, actually that's true. I, I actually tend to uh, fit into both. I fit into both because when I was on the job, when I was a firefighter, I, was, I tend to be passive in my aggression. I don't want to lose my job. That captain, that chief. So, but when I'd come home, I was open in aggression. And that forced me to start thinking, hey, both of these are wrong. 
I'm dealing with it inappropriately wrong. Now, what's interesting, people that are passive in their aggression think that people that are open in aggression are more wrong. But actually, both are wrong. And I kind of identify them as the open aggression is more gunslinger. You come with your guns, you know, blazing and wait until the dust has settled to see who's still standing. That's kind of that approach. And then there's the Eskimo. The other one, the passive aggression, is more of that Eskimo uh, treatment. Kind of just going to freeze them out. If I ignore them, they'll just die and go away, you know, or something. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's kind of interesting, but they're both inappropriate ways of dealing with the anger. They're inappropriate. They're forms of manipulation either way. One's trying to overpower. The other one's just kind of doing it subtly. Trying to, I'll just ignore them. I just won't give them what they want. I won't give them love. I won't, you know, so, so both ways are, are inappropriate. And this is what you need to keep in mind as it relates to this hostility that's in our heart when, when through fear, frustration, or hurt, the Bible says be angry but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So you can't be stockpiling this stuff because you get a couple decades behind you and you haven't dealt with this stuff appropriately. You're carrying around a lot of baggage. And it's going to mess up your relationships. And so it's really important when the Bible gives us counsel like that, saying, hey, unload that baggage. In the Lord's Prayer, when he says, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those that have sinned against us, that's really what you're doing. You're unloading that baggage. You're trying to deal with the junk in your life. You don't want to carry that around you. But this is what you need to keep in mind. Are you going to get hurt in relationships? Yeah, absolutely. Conflict is inevitable unless someone's lying, okay? Because when I've talked to couples, they go, oh, we've never had any conflict. How long have you been married? Ten years? What the heck is going on here? Somebody, I mean, that's, what, that's the first thing I'm thinking. I'm thinking, you guys are lying. I mean, Nancy and I, when we were first married, it was, you know, we had the conflict. And I think it's actually, it's, I think what's happening is that you're at least for the first time starting to be honest about what's going on in your life. And so there should be conflict. Conflict is inevitable, but combat is optional. It's how you deal with that. And so conflict is inevitable, and conflict gives opportunities for greater levels. Don't run from conflict. I always tell couples is that don't fight or flight, but face the issues because it's a wonderful opportunity to grow in maturity and intimacy, not only with God, but with one another. And you're going to miss out on a wonderful opportunity for God to make himself real to you in the midst of that to continue to transform your life and conform it more into the image of Jesus Christ. And I see people do that. They get into a conflict issue with the church and they're gone. They'll go to the next church. It's going to, it's going to happen in that church too. It always does. It just kind of follows you through. Or it could be a small group or not just church. It can be relationships. I see people go from relationship or from small group to small group or whatever. Just deal with that stuff because God can bring some amazing things. Now let me give you a quick illustration of what I'm talking about with some of this hostility and the inappropriate use of it. Just this last year, a reporter wrote an article on Governor Christie. You guys familiar with who he is? New Jersey Governor And when he was considering the presidential race, Governor Christie is overweight, this reporter said, Governor Christie, you're always talking about fiscal discipline. How about trying some physical discipline? Eat a salad. It's pretty harsh, isn't it? So whoever that reporter is, you can almost be sure that he is probably not overweight. And if he had been... uh, Boy, his colleagues would have never let him down. I mean, would have never let him get by with that. I mean, they would have, uh, he would have never been able to face his colleagues because of that. So let me ask you this. What makes it possible to be that cold and disdainful? By the way, that's, I'll just turn on the news during this political uh, time, you know, with all the stuff that's going on. It's amazing how disdainful people are. And listen to a lot of the talk radio that's out there. So what makes it possible for 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 someone to be that cold and disdainful. You can't just be happy that you kept your weight down, but you're proud you kept your weight down. And most people don't let that disdain or the disdain out because they want to be thought well of. But if you despise other people, you're disdainful, you hear it come from your mouth, out of the abundance of the mouth, uh, the heart speaks... When you hear that kind of cynicism and criticism that's coming out, it's it's telling you something. If you despise other people, races, political parties, cultures, religions, or other views, it's coming from, that's your next fill in the blank, it's coming from pride. Hostility comes from pride. 
If you knew that you were a sinner saved by grace, you wouldn't have that disdain for others. And so, when we talk about what causes disharmony, this hatred, it comes from pride. And pride, we said last week, it's uh, this towering, cowering. It's self-centeredness. It's self-focused. It's self-consumption and uh, and self-absorption. And it comes in the form of towering superiority or cowering. Um, 2 Corinthians 10, 12, Luke 16, 15 talks about the people in, the, in those days, and it's the same in our days, that we tend to compare ourselves with one another. When God gives us good gifts, talents, and strengths, there is something in the human heart that wants to elevate them up to an absolute value and then look down on those who don't have what we have. C.S. Lewis put it this way, really interesting quote from him, talking about pride. C.S. Lewis points out that pride is by nature competitive. It is competitiveness that is at the very heart of pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. So it's based on this kind of pecking order, and I feel better. It's either superiority or then I get around. You know, for me, uh, as a pastor, this is very common with pastors. Let me just share a little bit of my own insecurity in that is that there was a time, and still do, I have to battle that, I'll get around churches with uh, pastors of smaller churches, Ooh, I feel big, superior, and then I'd get around uh, pastors with larger churches, cowering, why would I do that? Next point on your notes, it's because of misplaced identity, misplaced identity, now as you fill in the blank, Look up here. You need to understand that. God has blessed us wonderfully. God has blessed me. He's blessed me. And when I do those uh, inventories of gifts, three primary gifts that I have are teaching, leadership, and evangelism. God did not give those gifts for me to feel bigger than you, not to feel better than you. He gave me those gifts to bless you by pointing to the one who is the giver of all wonderful gifts, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only reason why he gives us those gifts. So if God gives you a bigger church or a smaller church, that's by God's grace. I am what I am by God's grace, not to tower or cower, but to point ultimately, wherever you might be in life, to point to God. And... uh, but it's misplaced identity. Identity has to do with something that we, we're all building an identity, and you're all, we're all building an identity on something. Any, anyone that builds their identity on anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, it's inherently unstable. You're going to crash and burn. If I build my identity, which I did for a number of years, on my wife's affirmation, it nearly crashed our marriage because I had misplaced my identity and looked to her to give me affirmation that I should have been looking to the cross and to Christ that he has already given to me. And so I begin to make these demands on her and saying, hey, come on. And we, we even went to Christian seminars and they even taught and they reinforced that. Oh, yeah, make a list of what you want your wife to do, and she'll do that, and then sit down and try to negotiate and work through that. See, they never dealt with my problem of idolatry, that I had turned what she did and how she created me as an object of worship that literally controlled my life and controlled how I would respond to her. That's called misplaced identity. See, if I misplace my identity by the size of this church or how successful this church is by numbers or by finances, I can actually move to becoming a manipulator and a controller and use, uh, that's why a lot of pastors, they'll use guilt and fear and a lot of other ways to try to build their church rather than a heart smitten by Christ and allow the chips fall where they may. I'm going to serve God. This is the way it's going to be. We're about making disciples. I know that in making disciples, sometimes I'll offend people. That's the way it's going to be. But what happens oftentimes is that pastors will pull their punches. And they just want to please everybody. Because they want to attract as many people as they can. And so they can fall prey to not speaking the truth. 
and making it all about love and it's misplaced identity. It's all misplaced identity. So if we misplace our identity, we can be, we can be you know, tossed to and fro by everything that's going on in our lives. And so we, have, we desperately need acceptance Security and significance. And you're right now building your accepted significance, security, your identity on something. What is it? I've even seen parents build it on their kids and how their kids turn out. And now, I mean, they crash and burn because their kids don't turn out the way that they, they, they should. And then they become manipulating and controlling parents because so much of their identity, they're, they're operating out of fear and pride versus a heart filled with the love of God. So you can see how the impact that it takes and why parents can get so hostile towards their kids because their kids are their idols because they've got to turn out a certain way and it's because of pride and my kids are better than your kids and my kids are more athletic than your kids and that doesn't matter. What's most important, as the Livingstons said to me, they said, we want our, our little sweet girl to get her validation from God that her identity would be in Jesus no matter whatever talents God may give her that she would use all that she has for the glory of God. That's big. That's important. Misplaced identity. So hostility comes from pride. Pride comes from misplaced identity. You'll notice in verse 17 in our text, he says, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about both those that were inside the church and those outside the church. So both those inside the church can misplace their identity as pastors, as as Christians, we put our identity in our kids. We put our identity in our moral behavior. We've got it all together, holier than thou kind of an attitude. Or outside the church, we can kind of put it in, as I said last week, and I put the verse down there, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Degrees. Oh, he's a doctor. Woohoo! I mean, that's great. That's a great pursuit, but it shouldn't be your identity. Or let not the rich man boast of his riches. That's great. God has blessed you. It's not your identity. What happens when the market falls out from under you? And, and I've heard a lot of people that that's happened to with this downturned economy. And then they realize that money was more than just money to them. It was their identity. It was knocked out from under them. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Rich man boast of his strength. Or the rich man boast of his riches. Or the strong man boast of his strength. So it's, if you analyze any argument or outburst of anger, you will find ruling desires that are being frustrated, often good things elevated to ultimate things or to God things. This is why the earth has been red with human blood for centuries. They become objects. Anything other than Christ becomes an object of worship. It will control your life. There's a resource I want to tell you about. I'm not going to get into a little bit of what he said. I can, you can study this on your own, but... Um, I get a, on a monthly basis from Christian Audio, I get a free book. You can get a free book from Christian Audio. Just Google search that. And the, this month's free book, it's a great book. It's called Resolving Everyday Conflict. It's by a guy by the name of Ken Sandy, S-A-N-D-E. He's also got a website that's got quite a number of resources if you want to learn a little bit more about this conflict resolution. But that's what he talked about in that book. Is this, it's just this, it's these inordinate desires that wage war within us, as I said there in James 4, what causes these, these wars among us, that they're desires within us. Quick illustration, then we'll move on. I'm not particularly, I mean, I'm not proud of this in the least. I'm, I'm, God has helped me through this, but just to share in my own life. Some of you remember this, that when we relocated here to Sandra Day O'Connor wanting to save money. We thought, well, let's not buy office space. Let's see if we can put our money into a home. And so, so we bought a home that was right next door to where Nancy and I live in this area where there's acreages. And we thought, well, we'll do our office out of that home. That was a terrible idea for a number of reasons. One was that the office was right next to my house. And just and the second, because it's just, and there was nonstop activity there, and we really made the neighbors pretty mad. And two doors down, right next to, to where the office was, there was a neighbor. This guy, I called him little Hitler. i tell you a little bit about him. He was mean. He was nasty. He was ugly. He was harsh. When people would come in for counseling or come into the office, 
for one reason or another to meet with the pastors. I mean, he would almost stand on the fence line and, and, and intimidate uh, people and talk trash to them. And, uh, boy, that ticked me off royally. I mean, I was just like, yeah, I, I can take that guy. I know I can. And so, uh, and I could. I could have taken him. Okay. And I wanted to take him. I go, this little piece of crap of a man. You know, it's just, that was, yeah, that's coming from your pastor. That's exactly what was coming, going on in my heart. And yet I was troubled. I was troubled for a number of reasons. One was fear. I could just, you could read in the newspaper some morning, pastor beats up neighbor. You know, Pastor Ray is in jail because he beat up the neighbor. So that, that wouldn't work very well. And, and not only that, it was something much deeper than that, just from the, the fear of that and pride. I, I, there was something that was much deeper than that. And that was just the fact that when the Bible says to love your enemy, I had no idea what that meant because I wanted to kill my enemy because I thought, this guy is hindering us, you know, the, the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless God, nobody's going to get in the way. And it, it was almost like it took a while for God to get my attention. And God said, uh, hello, uh, Ray. He didn't call me Pastor Ray. He just says, Ray, and sometimes knucklehead. Hey, dude, pay attention. Listen to me. Nothing stops the progress of the gospel. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. And finally, when I realized that, I go, wait a minute. Yeah, why am I so upset? And what I realized, it was idolatry. Is that I had attached the well-being of this church so much to my sense of identity, and this guy's interfering with it. How dare him? See, you see the hostility, then the pride, the misplaced identity? How dare him? How dare him stand in the way of what God's wanting to do? And God's saying, hey, he's not standing in the way of anything. I'm in control. I'll never forget it. I was in my office, and man, I was just brokenhearted over this whole deal. I just thought, man, how can I even get up and teach this stuff? I believe that God's love could so ravish your heart that you can actually love your enemies. But I'm not experiencing it. And I just broke down. I got on my knees and pleaded before God. God hit me in that time of prayer with an understanding and a revelation of his love unlike I have ever experienced before. But it wasn't until I got on my knees and I cried out to him, and I recognized my wretchedness and my sinfulness, and he met me. He met me right there and began to pour into my heart a love that I had never had before. And I actually began to love this guy. By the way, I never acted out on those feelings of hostility, okay? (laughs) I mean, I just kept them hidden, and it was just all I could do to keep when I would go by and try to be nice, you know, try to smile and be nice and all that. And it was really hard because I knew that I can't act out on that, but God, you need to change my heart before I do. And guess what he did? And it was a fight, but he changed my heart. And I began to reach out to him and love him. And then I realized, and we even got together as elders. We said, you know what? We shouldn't be here. These neighbors don't want us here. We're not going to shove it down anybody's throat. That's no way to reach the neighborhood. And so we decided to put it up for sale. We sold it, and the church made $100,000 on the sale. So it was kind of amazing. It was like, well, we should have just let God. I need to get out of the way. Let God take control of my life. And, and I'm careful to say that because things don't always work out that way, but that's how they worked out for us. It was pretty amazing. And then uh, as God melted my heart, I reached out to him. A little bit later on, his wife got cancer, and Nancy and I was able to go over there and take them food and minister to them and to love them. And I know it was only by the grace of God that we were able to do that, to offer the love of Jesus to someone that would spit in my face. I mean, this guy was harsh. And yet God showed me what it was all about. It was about my pride. My hostility came from my pride because of my misplaced identity. I wasn't trusting God. I was trusting in our ability to try to navigate and manipulate and work things out and get this all done. So I began to rest in God. And it's, it's never been more peaceful when I begin to say, God, it's, it's in your hands I trust you. I'm just going to be faithful to proclaim the gospel and allow my heart to be regularly ravished and smitten by the beauty and the glory of who you are. So that takes us to the next, next point here. So you got hostility comes from pride. Pride comes from misplaced identity. So what is the cure to our disharmony? I gave you another, some, uh, another set of cross-references there. Philippians 2, 1 through 11 are great verses on... Uh, 
dealing with that hostility and pride and misplaced identity, he starts off this chapter by saying this. Maybe you're familiar with this. We studied this a couple years ago through Philippians. He says, so if there is any encouragement. Literally, he's saying, since you have encouragement in Christ. Now, think about that. He's just saying, man, you have encouragement in Christ. Do you understand that? And you have comfort from his love and participation in the spirit and affection and sympathy. And then he goes on, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. And then he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Conceit means vainglory or empty of glory, that your heart's empty. He says, man, if you understand the love of God, your heart won't be empty. And then you'll be able to go on. And he says, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. How are we able to do that? Only because our hearts are filled up with the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's your fill in the blanks. So what is the cure to our disharmony? Spiritual reconciliation with God leads to psychological reconciliation, healthiness and wholeness, producing social reconciliation, harmony. So this is how it works. And you see the breakdown when you study uh, Genesis 3. You see this breakdown. When Adam and Eve really pushed away from God, there's that spiritual alienation which creates within them psychological alienation, which you don't have the acceptance, significance, security that you desperately need. Then you're going to begin to look around on this planet Earth to try to find it, and you'll run over people, or if people are interfering with your ability to get it, that's where that hostility comes. But when he uses this word over and over again, this idea of peace throughout this text, verse 14, 15, and 17, and when he uses the word therefore, verse 11, what is he talking about there? He's talking about we've been reconciled with God. We have everything that we need through Jesus Christ. See, the big idea of the Bible from cover to cover, you know what this book is about? Reconciliation. First, reconciliation with God and then reconciliation with one another. And in that order, and I I think that we have missed the big idea, haven't we? When you look on the, the American landscape, when you look on the landscape of history... Man, the war, the conflict, the hostility. But see, what we've got to do is we've got to come back and be reconciled with God. Relationships are only as healthy as the individuals that make up those relationships. Therefore, individual wholeness is the key to healthy relationships. And individual wholeness only comes from God. Now, now listen to me. Everybody look up here. You've got to get this. You were created to walk in the garden and the cool of the day with God and have him look you in the eyes and for you to draw a sense of acceptance and security and significance from your maker that he loves you he adores you he thinks the world of you and that would bring a sense of wholeness and so when it comes to conflict horizontally you're not knocked back you're able to respond to it through reconciliation and respond to it appropriately But when we're disconnected this way, we're going to be disconnected inside of us. So that turmoil that's going on inside of us is because we're so desperate. I want to be loved. I want to be... You've got it in Jesus. He died on the cross for you once and for all to settle that. So that when we come to him regularly and through worship and through the study of his word... This to be a time to, to gaze into the eyes of God and to have him look back and say, I love you. I think the world of you. I died for you. I would rather die than to lose you for all eternity. See, that's the gospel message. But oftentimes we're not living in the reality of that. And that's what takes care of the disharmony. So we've got disharmony with God, which creates disharmony within ourselves. So if I really believe that I have peace with God... Oh my goodness, I'm going to have peace. Peace that guards my heart and mind in Christ Jesus, regardless of what goes down in my life. And then I'm going to have peace with others. I'm not going to be defensive. I'm going to be open about my problems and difficulties. And I'm going to be able to work to build a bridge across the chasm that separates us and that disharmony. Next point, becoming a Christian is a major identity shift. Notice what he says in verse 15, back to our text. He says, one new, literally it says one new humanity. You're, gonna, you're a new person. That last song that we sang, 
about he's working in our lives. Those that are in Christ have become a new creation. So you're a new person. Verse 16, one body. Verse 18, one spirit. Our society seeks to to eliminate racism by working on the mind through education and or working on the emotion and the will through fear and pride. Call them hate crimes, which they are, but it's got to go deeper. New laws don't make new hearts. Identity has to do with the core of a person's being and their, and their greatest treasure. Listen to what Keller, Tim Keller has to say in his book, The Reason for God. This is what he says about, about this whole idea of identity. If we get our identity, our sense of worth from our political position, then politics is not only about politics, it is about us. Through our cause, we are getting a self, our worth, That means we must despise and demonize the opposition. Sound familiar? If we get our identity from our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, then we have to feel superior to those of other classes and races. If you are profoundly proud of being an open-minded, tolerant soul, you will be extremely indignant toward people you think are bigots. If you are a very moral person, you will uh, feel very superior to people you think are licentious and so on and so forth. It becomes a form of self-righteousness rather than to look to Christ for your sense of, of identity. Let me knock out this next one. So, so our identity in Christ transcends all identity factors. I gave you some examples there you can study on your own. But for instance, Galatians 3.20, Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What is he talking about there? He's talking about, first of all, race, Jew or Greek, or slave or free. He's talking about socioeconomic, and he's talking about no male or female. He's talking about gender differences, but we are all one in Christ. So he's saying that our oneness in Christ uh, transcends those those differences. Luke ten twenty. the disciples are coming back after a big missionary trip, and they're pretty excited, but it's almost you get this idea that they're building their identity on the missionary trip, and they're saying, hey, listen, we cast out demons, and Jesus says, hey, wait a minute, that's cool, but that's not as cool as the fact that your name is written in, the, in heaven. So that's where your identity is, regardless of how many demons you cast out. Don't make that your identity. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? In other words, he's saying everything you have came from God. Use it as a pointer, as a gift from God and a pointer to God. And so identity in Christ transcends race, culture, gender, career, hobbies, you are a Christian first and American second. You're a Christian first and you're white or black second. You're a Christian first and you're male second. You're a Christian first and a baby boomer second. I mean, it's got, that's the thing that should drive our lives. And this is what our identity is in Christ. This is the next, next couple fill in the blanks. My identity in Christ is that I am more sinful than I ever dared to think. That brings the humility And at the same time, I am more loved than I ever dared to dream. That gives me the confidence. Verse 13, he says, by the blood of Christ. This is where the hostility goes in our lives and the pride and the misplaced identity. By the blood of Christ, verse 13. Verse 16, through the cross, he has brought peace. Okay, look up here. You were so sinful Jesus had to die. There was no other way for you to be reunited to the Father. How could you ever feel superior to anybody? Make sense? You guys tracking with me? If you understand you're a sinner saved by grace, you'll never fear, feel superior to anybody. But listen, he loved you so much, he wanted to die. How could you ever feel inferior to anybody? The Savior died for you. You guys catching? Catching what I'm trying to say? Humble confidence. It's called the blessed self-forgetfulness. 
You become so captivated by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. You don't think about yourself anymore. He's got the basis covered. Your life is filled up with him, and you want to show that to others. See, that's how the cross begins to change that. And then you don't, you don't have this pecking order anymore. It's not about any of that. It's just about using whatever gifts God has given you to minister to others, to love others. And so here's your next fill the blank. We'll knock out this next quick. We're going to take communion here this morning and wrap things up in just a few moments. But humble confidence gives me the ability to stop pretending I have it all together and admit my weaknesses. By the way, if you're going to have times of vulnerability, you need to have a cradle of security for your moments of vulnerability. And you have to have a lot of humility in that. And this is humility, just saying, hey, you know what? I don't have it all together. I can admit that I don't have it all together. I can admit my weaknesses. I can stop being defensive and more open to feedback. I can have my wife speak into my life. Here's what my wife had to do for a number of years, is that we couldn't even deal with our issues because of how I responded to her. So usually I categorize problems. They're either A problems or B problems. B problems are the business of the household. All, the, all of your problems. A problems are your attitude problems. She'd come and try to talk to me about finances, and I would just like manipulate her, control her, go off on her, you know, open aggression. And so what she had to do is come to me and say, hey, you know what, I'd love to talk about these problems, but let's first of all talk about how we, how we deal with problems. Just the atmosphere around which, and sometimes that's where you have to start. Just like, man, we just need to start loving each other and respecting each other. There needs to be humble confidence. We're not living, we're not living in the midst of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we stop pretending I have it all together and admit weaknesses. Stop being defensive and more open to feedback. Speak the truth in love. It's never loving to allow someone to sin against you. So you begin to restore them gently. You love them in the context of honor and humility. If possible, as, it far, as far as it depends on you, you live peaceably with all people. Man, you're doing everything you can to build a bridge. You're not driving wedges. In fact, if someone recoils and pulls away from you, you need to be asking, hey, what, what is it? Did I say something that shut you down, that would push you off? Now, it might not be what you said. It wasn't you. You're not the cause, but maybe it's just the occasion to reveal a past hurt in them. But you'll never get through to that by trying to force your way into the relationship. It'll only come through honesty, honor, humility. And so when you look at somebody and they're kind of recoiling or they're being defensive, the first thing you have to say is, hey, wait a minute. Was I disrespectful? Was I unloving? How many know what the crazy cycle is from love and respect? So if, if I'm, in fact, it goes something like this. I wrote it down. It goes like this. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, he reacts without love. That's a crazy cycle. Well, she's, you know, disrespectful. Well, he's unloving. Well, you got a timeout. It's, it's evident that I'm, I obviously said something that hurt. What was it? Because I am so sorry. I don't want to say things that hurt. Please forgive me. See, it's just as simple as that. As you begin to kind of work through that, when you see somebody push back or they're defensive, and as you kind of work through that, it's not, it's not that easy, actually, because sometimes it gets, it gets hard to work through, through these issues. But if, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Here's what it means. Relationships are two-way streets. You can only take care of your side of the street. Take care of your side of the street. And do all you can to build a bridge to that person. And uh, forgiveness is part of it. Forgiveness has to do with the past. It only takes one. Reconciliation has to do with the present. It takes two. Trust has to do with the future. And a person must show by actions over time that they're trustworthy. So just because you forgive doesn't mean you're going to run into the relationship, especially if it's an abusive relationship. You've got to be really cautious in that. You've got to be very careful and seek a lot of counsel if you have that tendency to do that. Next one, not think more of myself or less of myself, but think of myself less. That's that blessed self-forgetfulness. And then the last one, remember how indispensable and costly God's grace is so that it is an ongoing life-changing power and indispensable joy. In other words, here's the first, the first question in every relational conflict. How can I please and honor the Lord in this situation by putting his glory on display? Now, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to show a video in just a few minutes, and it's about forgiveness. And then at the end of that video, we're going to have three stations for communion. The way we're going to do communion here today, we do this often, back and forth, different types of communion. You're going to come forward, take the bread, and dip it in the cup. The bread represents his broken body for you. The cup represents his shed blood for you. If you're not a Christian, don't take communion, please. 
But you can become a Christian by confessing Christ as your Savior, acknowledging your sin, believing that he died on the cross for your sins, and turning your life over to him, and then feel free to take communion with us. But I also want, to, want you to do this. The Bible says not to take communion in an unworthy fashion. What that means is if you've got a pattern of sin in your life and you know that God's been dealing with you and you haven't taken it to him, bring it to him today. Confess it to him and then take communion and ask him, what's my next step so that I can begin to get over these things that I have this pattern in my life over? And if you have conflict with somebody that's here, take care of that right here before you take communion. If, you, if it just means going up to him and saying, man, I'm so sorry. I've been responding wrongly. Please forgive me. Bring Start, start the efforts of reconciliation right here before you take communion. Would you do that for me? Otherwise, don't take communion and, and be willing to allow Christ to continue to work on you as it relates to this. When you take communion, this is what he's saying to you. It's almost as if Jesus is looking you right in the eyes and he's saying, I will remember your sins no more. I will never bring them up and use them against you. I will never talk to others about your sins. I will never let your sins stand between us and hinder our relationship. There is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Christians are the most forgiven people in the world, and therefore we should be the most forgiving people in the world. Would you bow your heads? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for what you're teaching us. Thank you for the amazing gospel. May it continue to ravish our hearts. May we be smitten by your beauty as we take communion. Fill our hearts with your love. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to watch the video. Then you can come forward, take communion, and then you can exit quietly, if you would, please, at the end of this. God bless you. The Amish often read the words of an old German hymn when they bury their dead. In the small community of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, this time last year, they had need of words that comfort and mourn. Five little girls had been buried in their simple white dresses. Five others were in critical condition, their survival uncertain. Among people bound by strong ties of family, faith, and tradition, whose children do not watch violent movies, video games, or television. Ordinary life had been upended by wrenching horror. On a cloudless October morning, under a blue sky that reminded some people there of 9-11, the school bell called the children in from play. Their teacher, Emma, read from the Bible. The children stood and recited the Lord's Prayer in German, then sang hymns in German and in English. Death often comes quickly, said one of the hymns. He who today is vigorous and ruddy may tomorrow or sooner have passed away. At around 10.15, a local milk truck driver named Charles Roberts IV entered the schoolhouse bearing a small arsenal and a grudge against God. After ordering the girls to lie face down on the floor, he called his wife on the phone and told her he was angry at God for the death of their firstborn daughter, Elise, nine years earlier. In execution style, Roberts began firing his semi-automatic pistol into the little girls lying on the floor. As police crashed into the school, he shot himself dead. The media descended on nickel mines and the story circled the globe. As the Amish mourned and buried their children, they were showered with messages and gifts from all over the world. But what proved most helpful, we learned, was something hard to describe, a common painful thread that drew the families together. The authors of Amish Grace say the community had been prepared by thick habits of mutual aid rooted in the New Testament commandment to bear one another's burdens. Then, with a swiftness that startled the world, the stricken Amish did something remarkable. They forgave the killer, Charles Roberts, and reached out to his widow and children. Three Amish men showed up one evening to express their sorrow. Another called on the killer's father and for an hour held him in his arms. When Roberts himself was buried next to his daughter, more than half the mourners at the cemetery were Amish. It was, one of them said, simply the right thing to do. Have you already forgiven? 
in my heart, yes. How is that possible? Through God's help. People were so blown away by this notion of forgiveness. The fact right. that they went to the yes. shooter's funeral is just mind-boggling. How do they have the wherewithal? The to Amish community says they have forgiven the man who shot 10... Amish forgiveness became the talk of the world. Not all of it sympathetic. One columnist called it undeserved forgiveness because the Amish were forgiving someone who had hurt others. But Amish grace is not cheap grace. The people and their ways may appear simple, but they defy simplistic judgments. Their faith was born in suffering centuries ago when their forebears called for a voluntary church free and separate from government and were martyred by the thousands at the hands of Protestants and Catholics alike. Grief is no stranger to the Amish, and healing has never been easy. But one of the grieving fathers said, as they had released the killer, they had released themselves from anger and from bitterness, but not from pain. A year after the killings in Pennsylvania, the old school has been torn down and replaced with one named New Hope. Three of the surviving five girls are back in class with the same teacher. On October 2nd, the school was closed and silent for the day in remembrance. On the anniversary of their loss, the community once again spoke to the larger world in a statement saying that forgiveness is a journey. You need help from your community of faith and from God and sometimes even from counselors to make and hold on to a decision to not become a hostage to hostility. Hostility, they said, destroys community.